Welcome to Epiphany, the podcast where we discern what is good, acceptable, and perfect by the renewal of our minds in the light of Christ. Hey guys, welcome back to the Epiphany Podcast for our next episode. Um, yeah, this episode is going to be a little different than what we've done before, uh, mainly because I don't have a guest today. It's just me talking, um, monologuing, if you will. And um, part of that is just practical. It's hard to find people, sign up, schedule things. But also um, for the integrity of our process, um, a lot of people have come forward and said, hey, Father, how about we do, um, how about we talk about this or that? And a lot of really great ideas have been put forward. But what I started realizing is if we just kind of hodgepodge different ideas, we may lose some kind of sense of progression, you know. And so, yeah, some of the some of the topics we talk about will be based on um, what's available and kind of how I can schedule the interviews and, and thoughts. But I do want there to be some kind of coherence that, you know, I don't want us to just jump around wildly. And so today I figured what I would do is talk about the incarnation, I want to reflect on the mystery of the incarnation. I touched on it a little bit in my prologue episode, and um, the 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 title Epiphany, you know, the titular feast day, is a celebration of the extension of the incarnation, which we celebrate mainly um, during during the Christmas season, you know, with the birth of God Himself as Jesus Christ. And so, um, I want to talk about the incarnation because, as I promised in the prologue episode, I I don't want the podcast simply just to be us talking about church teaching and, and talking about the ideas of the faith and things like and understanding church teaching. All that is very important. I love doing that and diving into that. But more importantly, and maybe maybe really the reason I wanted to do this is I, I want all of the listeners, I want all you guys, um, not only just to know what the church believes, but I want you to think with the mind of the church. That's that's what we're looking for. I said in the in the prologue, I was we talked about metanoia, right? There's that word that comes to us from the beginning of the gospels where Jesus says, Repent and believe in the gospel, for the you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. And that word repent in Greek is metanoia, which if you kind of break down the Greek word, meta means after or beyond or to transcend. And then noia is, is a, the root word there is noose, which is mind. And so what metanoia literally means, what the Lord is commanding us, what John the Baptist hearkens, what they're asking is like transform your mind, like think differently, because God is coming to do something that requires not only just a, a new idea to be put in your head, but a completely new reframing of the way you even see the world, right? And so the church is filled with that. The church is filled with um, not only just beautiful teachings and technicality, but the church is, it's, it's to be, to be Catholic, to be Christian really at the root is not just to think like different ideas, right? But it's actually to think in a different way. There's a new way of thinking. And so incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation, I would propose is one of the fundamental principles of what it means to think and believe like a Christian, to see the world in an incarnational way is really at the heart of Christian thought. And we've already kind of bumped up against some of these ideas and principles um, when we talked about Mary and we've talked about confession and, and things like that. And before we get too much deeper, I, w- I just wanted to take this moment in this episode, pause, 
talk about the mystery of the incarnation and how that can enlighten us, um, how that can kind of enlighten our minds and help us to think in a new way about who God is, how he acts, how he behaves, but also how he is inviting each and every one of us to behave. So that's my, that's my vision for this episode. Um, Hopefully by the end of it, you're not completely tired of thinking about the mystery of the incarnation, but I hope that it'll kind of unlock new um, avenues of depth. And so to start, I want to just give a brief introduction. So the word incarnation in English is is pulled from the Latin word incarnatio, um, which literally means to incarnate or or to um, to become flesh. Okay, so the word incarnation is used even outside of Christian context, although the Christian use of the word um, incarnation is by far the most famous and popular throughout history. But to use the word incarnation is what we're meaning is there is a spiritual, invisible reality entity. It can be a deity like a god in ancient mythology. It can be, well, and for us, it's Jesus Christ. It's the son of God himself. But it can be even concepts or ideas or anything like that. But incarnation is the process by which those ethereal or those spiritual, or those immaterial, or those invisible things, concepts, persons, gods, you know, whatever. It's the process by which they take on flesh, or they take on a visible corporeal form. Um, and, and that's what incarnation is. Um, the, we get the idea of like carnivore, right? Is to just, is a diet in which you only eat meat. Okay. And so that same word of carn, like that, that, that incarnation, carnivore, that same uh, car word is used there and it's denoting the flesh. And so that's, that's kind of the root word. <clears throat> The mystery of the incarnation, we learn very briefly, but very powerfully um, from the gospel messages. We know that God literally becomes man. Um, and we're going to dive more into that later, but I want to talk, I want to I want to just kind of cite our, uh, our principal text here. And we go to the prologue of the gospel of John. It's the opening, it's the opening chapter, and John is just setting the stage for what or who Jesus is and what he's come to accomplish. And he, and he lays out some of the most beautiful biblical theology in the entire scripture, if I can be so bold to say. And I'm going to read the first five verses. And, in, and John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You could pause right there and just reflect just on that opening verse for a long time. But he continues, he was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him and without him, nothing came to be. What came to be through him was life. And this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's a beautiful little opening um, few sentences from the the Gospel of John, and we could spend an entire episode probably just picking apart the meaningfulness in these words. But but this is the beginning. And so what John is doing is establishing a very clear theology of who Jesus is. The Word of God goes all the way back to the beginning. The Word was with God, but the Word is God as well. He's starting to establish what would have been really a revolutionary understanding of God. And remember, John is the beloved disciple. Okay, he's the beloved apostle. So he would have walked with Jesus and he would have had a particular insight into who Jesus was. He would have seen Jesus pray. 
He would have heard him pray. He would have seen him teach. He would have seen him act. But also John would have had access to Jesus behind closed doors, right? He would have had that access when the access to Jesus when the crowds were gone, you know, in those little intimate conversations that Jesus would have had with his best friends. G, um, John was one of, not, not only was he the beloved disciple, who, by the way, alone um, with Mary and Mary Magdalene and some other disciples, was alone of the apostles at, in being at the foot of the cross. He was the only apostle that was with our Lord in the, in the climax of salvation history. Um, but also, John was one of Jesus's three closest friends. Right. It's, it says whenever, whenever like the three break away from the 12, it's Peter, James, and John. And so John had a lot of special access to Jesus. And in, in his gospel, and remember the word gospel literally means good news. What John is reporting is he's, he's trying to tell us this is who Jesus is and this is what he did. And so he lays out this word of God language, which would have been revolutionary because it was unique in Christianity that we have an understanding now that God is one. That's not unique, right? The Jews would have understood that that was kind of a radical shift in the, in the Jewish theology when God revealed himself to be utterly one. He's not like he's not like one among many equal gods like every other nation surrounding the ancient Jews would have believed, but Jews were unique in the sense that God is utterly one. There's only one Lord, there's only one God, and he is the Lord and God of all the other spiritual beings that we encounter, right? But for Christianity, what is revealed to us and is only really revealed to us because of the incarnation, which we'll talk about in a moment, it's revealed to us that God is also three persons, right? And, and, you, can, and you can call the second person um, the Son. That's what we typically call him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But John here is also referring to that second person as the Word of God. And so he continues, and I'm going to skip some of the, some of the verses um, just because he's talking about um, he's talking about John the Baptist who comes as a forerunner for um, for the for Jesus's coming, but then it, it kind of this this litany of theology picks up with verse fourteen, and John says, "And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we saw his glory." the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And so that's going to be kind of our titular um, verse for today's reflection. And the Word became flesh incarnated, right? And it became incarnate. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's, it's said the Word became flesh and dwelt among us is another kind of way to say that same thing. And brothers and sisters, this verse in John 1 verse 14 this is the is the drive of the whole Christian worldview. This is the drive of the whole of Christian theology. The fact that God loved us so much, right? It also is in this gospel where you have the famous passage, John 3, 16, right? So, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right? That the whole point of the gospel is that God became man because he loved us so much. He died on the cross and rose again from the dead that we might have eternal life. If you can summarize the whole gospel, that's like, that's a great way to do it. I'm not going to claim to have a perfect summary, but that's it. Like God so loved us that he came into the world and he became a man. He took on flesh. And so the incarnation is just the celebration of the, of the miracle that God became man. I also have proposed in the past, and, and it's, it's almost a silly thing to propose because who knows, but I think there's something to it. I've proposed that the resurrection, although... 
the like incredible miracle that kind of ties this whole Jesus moment together in a big neat bow and then grants us hope. Like the resurrection, although the central miracle maybe of the whole Christian church, I would say that the incarnation is probably the most incredible miracle that God performs, which again, it's like, okay, what, what is it to be a more incredible miracle? Everything the Lord does is incredible. But if you think about the mystery of the incarnation, okay, God became man and he walked among us and then he died and then he came back from the dead. Like to me in my just simplistic mind, like the resurrection to me makes sense. Like, of course, God conquers death. Of course, God like can't really die. And so if he dies, of course, he comes back. Like to me, that's like, okay, that makes sense. Like God can conquer death, right? Even though that miracle is radically significant and important for us. But the incarnation is almost ludicrous. It's the, the incarnation is so miraculous. It's, it's impossible. It, it truly, it's impossible for us uh, to understand because what happened is remember God is infinite, Okay, God is infinite. He stands outside of time. He doesn't live in time. He's beyond time. Like if you imagine time was like a timeline on a piece of paper from the beginning of creation all the way to the end and the final judgment, God is not like, God's not like walking down the timeline with us as we have to do, right? No, God is like above the timeline and he sees all of time as present to him. You know, it's like it, we, it's, this comes up and this is very important when we talk about things like um, arguments about predestination and like, well, God knows what's going to happen. So are we really free to choose it? Like, are we locked into our position? It's like the, one of the fundamental misunderstandings about that discussion is the fact that we think of God as being in time like us. God doesn't know the future. Because that implies that God is in the present and not in the future. God doesn't know the future. He is in the, like he's present to the future right now. The reason, the reason he quote unquote knows the future is because he's standing there watching it happen currently. So, so anyway, that kind of breaks up a whole new thing, but this is the, this is God who we're talking about. This is, he's, he's transcendent of time. He, he lives outside of time, right? He's eternal. He's not subject to decay. Right. One of the cool things about God is that he's pure. Okay. If you, if you, if you're, if you like, if you're kind of a nerd about ancient philosophy, then th- this is a little bone for you. But if not, you can ignore this next couple seconds. But, um, he's pure activity. There's no potency in God. Like in, in potency means like potential, right? Potential implies that something could be later, right? A baby um, is a full human being, but like there's a lot of potency in a baby because the baby's going to grow into something different later. God does not have potency. God doesn't become something else later. God is always what he is. They, and, and so that really kind of grounds our principle on God, that God is immutable, immutable, I-M-M, immutable. And what that means is God doesn't change. Okay, God isn't subject to emotions. He's not subject to decay. He doesn't get sick. He doesn't change. He doesn't. He's he's utterly God, and he's always what he is. And 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 so that's who we're talking about, right? He's so he's omnipotent. He's ever you know all powerful. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Like this is God, and somehow by some miracle, by some ludicrous miracle, he 
becomes a man. That same God, and he doesn't lose his divinity. It's not like it's not like some ancient mythologies where the gods like fall down from heaven and they lose their divine blessing or something. It's not that. Like God is he he Jesus Christ is fully God. He is the 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 eternal God. He is the creator of the universe. He is the word of God from the beginning, right? John is very clear about that. Um he is fully God. Yet he also becomes fully man. I mean just let that sink in for a moment. Like let that miracle truly sink in for a moment. How incredible that is. Theologians have have used the phrase self-annihilation to refer to what God had to do to become incarnate. Self-annihilation. God had to annihilate himself in order to become man. Right? That's like that's the level of 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 um, that's the level of intensity, and I don't know if it was painful. It, it in a sense it almost would have to be like it, but anyway. But that's like that's the degree to which God loves you. Is He's so willing to come and be close to you that He even took on human nature, right? That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Because think of what human nature means. Human human nature means you die. Human nature means you get sick. Human nature means you like you suffer and you feel pain and then you feel emotions. I mean, how many of us have been at a point in our lives where we just wished we didn't have to feel any of this? Like how many of us just were like, gosh, I just really wish I didn't even have the capacity to be sad because the sadness is so heavy and dark and hard that I just wish I couldn't feel it at all, right? And, and gosh, and think about this too, how many people have spent years of their lives, millions of dollars, and wasted tons of different energies and health just to be numb, right? Humanity, in short, is drudgery. <laughs> to, to be a human person is to live a very difficult life. It's not all difficult, right? There's also beauty and hope and meaningfulness that comes from all that stuff. But to be honest with you, that but that is what the Lord took on. Um, I've always thought it was kind of crazy that Jesus, uh, Jesus became a baby, and even before he became a baby, like Jesus became an embryo, like God became an embryo. Like, can you think of a more, um, like a more humble beginning than to become a single cell organism and then to grow and to become a zygote and then a fetus and then, you know, to be born and then to be a baby. And, and you know, we're human beings and babies take about 18 years <laughs> to grow up into adulthood. And so he like... You know, he just sat at the house, you know, with Mary and Joseph. He learned how to be a carpenter. He he took on the fullness of human life. I mean, he became a man. Like in everything that that means, he became a man. He was like us in all things but sin. Everything everything that um, we do, everything we experience, everything, he became like us. Okay. So that is the incarnation and that's the miracle of the incarnation. Um, but the question may be like, why? Why this method? Um, and I'm not going to give every single answer, and maybe I'm not even going to give the best answer. Who knows? I'm, I'm not going to claim that. But I'm going I'm to propose that the incarnation, although a completely ludicrous miracle, like it's, it's just it's unprecedented in so many ways. I'm going to propose that it wasn't, if you were paying attention, if you were paying attention closely throughout salvation history, the incarnation wasn't as crazy as it may seem. 
Because what Jesus or what God accomplished in the incarnation is he established like a certain method of relationship. He established the fact that like we would relate to God not only in a spiritual way, but also in a physical way. Like that our relationship with God would be more than just spiritual. It also like kind of take on a physical being. And, and it wasn't completely unprecedented. And this is what I mean. Read the, read the whole Old Testament. Yeah, pause this episode and read the whole. No, I'm just joking. Um, if you or reflect on the Old Testament, reflect on all of your Old Testament stories and pick any one of them. Honestly, any single story in the Old Testament. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find one that does not fit into this game I'm about to lay out. God wants to accomplish something. Well, how does he accomplish it? He accomplishes it through um, mediators. Let's think of, let's think of like my, my favorite Old Testament book. Um, let's think about the book of Exodus. Okay, the whole book of Exodus, it begins with the fact that the um, Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. Um, because remember the book of Genesis right before it, it ends with um, the, the, the 12 sons of Israel coming, coming to Egypt because the, their brother, Joseph, who they threw and sold into slavery, became second to Pharaoh. And so he kind of welcomed them. So the Israelites actually enjoyed a place of privilege um, in Egypt during that famine because of everything Joseph had done um, for the Pharaoh. But then it says in, in, in the beginning of Exodus that a new Pharaoh came who did not know Joseph and and his significance and his people. And so all of a sudden they go from the top down to the bottom. And so they're slaves and everybody knows this. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt. That's like the whole context of the book of, um, of the book of Exodus. And so God is sitting here, of course, like his chosen people, the people of the God of gods, Lord of Lords, like the chosen people cannot be slaves to a rival nation. That's like, that does not do for the Lord. And so he's ready to liberate them from that slavery. Well, how does he do it? Does God come down and just kill Pharaoh? Does God come down and smite him? Does, does God like conquer the Egyptian land and just give it to the chosen people? No, no, no. He, he calls on a guy, Moses, who, by the way, is a fugitive. He's, he's hiding in a foreign land because he had killed a, um, killed a guard in Egypt and he knew that he would be dead. And so he called this guy, this little Joe Schmo, basically. He calls Moses and says, hey, I want you to go talk to Pharaoh for me. <laughs> which that's like, that's like if God called you and was like, Hey, I just need you to go speak to the president real quick. Like, just go talk to him for me. And you're like, what? Like, first of all, I don't talk to the president. Like I don't just get to call him up. Like it's the same thing with the Pharaoh. Right. And anyway, so he calls Moses and he has Moses communicate everything he wants to do. And then, and then when God wants to speak, he, he speaks through Moses. And, and when God saves the people, he does so by telling Moses to tell the people to do something like he's constantly using this mediation. Okay. And, and that could be weird. It's like, okay, why does he do that? Like, why doesn't God just come and do things directly? Like, why doesn't he just come and, um, establish this connection like face to face? Um, and I would say, I would propose the answer to that is because it would be a certain kind of cruelty to us. That's kind of a bold way. That's kind of a, a jarring way to say it, but I don't disagree with it either. It's like for if God were to relate to us merely spiritually, 
like, right, like spirit to spirit, like just like God's spirit would just come and like dwell with your spirit and you would just communicate spiritually without any kind of bodily manifestation, without any kind of incarnation. um, I think it would actually be a sort of injustice to us. And here's why, because if you go all the way back to creation, when God made man and woman, when he made mankind, he made us body and soul. To be a human person is to be an incarnate spirit. It's actually the nature of a human person to be an an incarnate spirit. We have that, our soul, right? And our soul is made manifest. It's made present and visible in the world through our bodies. And so one of, that's one of the, that's one of the oldest definitions of a human person. A human person is an incarnate spirit as opposed to an angel, which is a, which is just a spirit, Right. We are incarnate spirits. We have both a spiritual life and a physical life. And so when God relates to us, he would then communicate to us in the way that he made us, right? He would communicate to us not only spiritually, but he would also communicate to us physically, right? In a sense, like he made us a body-soul composite. And so why would he then ignore the body entirely and only speak to the soul? It doesn't really make sense, especially if if you remember that the whole reason— the whole reason we are body soul composites is because God made us that way. Like he designed us to be that way. So you would think that when God wants to relate to us, he would also relate to us through the means by which he created us. Like he would he would in a sense cooperate with our nature. Okay. So he would communicate to us both bodily and soul. And so when God speaks to people in the Old Testament, when God moves people, when he wins battles, when he heals the sick, when he does all of these miracles, he always does it through people. Think about um, Leviticus 19. This this particular image is just fresh on my mind. Um, but Leviticus 19 talks about, you know, Leviticus is a whole book of laws. It's like reading a law book. It's not the most interesting thing, but it's all the it's all the laws that the Lord gave the people at Mount Sinai and, and as as they wandered through the desert. And so one of the um one of the laws is that if you sin in a particularly grievous way, you are to make reparations by offering a holocaust offering or um by by, by bringing by bringing an animal to the high priest and then the high priest will offer that on your behalf starts to sound a little familiar if you are thinking about the Eucharist or you're thinking about the forgiveness of sins that Christ came to bring us, right? And so the priest offers that sacrifice on your behalf and then your sins are forgiven. That's what it says in Leviticus 19. Well, then it's it's like, well, why didn't just God, like, why don't I just pray in my heart and like ask God's forgiveness and why doesn't he just forgive? It's like, no, God established this means so that our, not only his forgiveness but also our like our contrition and our reparation would not only be spiritual but also bodily and his forgiveness would would not only just be a spiritual sense but it would be ratified in some kind of visible way as well that's why every single covenant god enters into with his people he ratifies with a sign right there's a sign of the covenant there's a visible seal that communicates to the rest of the world who you are in that you were in a covenant with God. Think about the covenant he makes with Noah. He seals it with the sign of the rainbow. So the rainbow, every time you see the rainbow visibly with your physical eyes, you were reminded that God promised he would never destroy again all of creation. Um, think about the sign of Abraham. That's the particularly gruesome sign for us men, but it's the it's circumcision. You would know immediately 
visibly speaking, whether a guy was part of the old covenant or not. That was a, that was a very visible sign. So God's whole relationship with us is not only deeply spiritual, it doesn't only get to the, kind of the core of who we are as a being, but it also is something that's ratified invisible physical elements. And so the whole testament is a testimony to this. So then when God comes and says, it's finally time for me to unveil my master plan, right? So like, it's finally, we've come to the climax of salvation history and I'm finally ready to to resolve this whole dialogue and this whole tension that's begun with Adam and Eve's disobedience. He chooses to come to us in a similar means as he has before, but in a unique and profoundly new way, which is to become man himself. In deep within this, deep within this, um, in this mystery, there's also, there's also a profound affirmation of what happened in creation, right? I, I talked during the, uh, one of the Mary episodes I spoke about Jesus as the new Adam and Mary as the new Eve and how the obedience of the new Adam um, undoes the disobedience of the old Adam and, and how the cooperation of the old Eve is undone by the cooperation of the new Eve. You know, like there's a lot of beautiful reflection there. But one of the things is, okay, so we've, we, we've established, I think, pretty, pretty clearly um, that God enjoys making himself known, not only spiritually and physically, but why? Why does he do it that way? Well, because he created us that way. But on another level, on a deeper, on, on a deeper level, I think it reveals God's love for humanity. It reveals God's love for humanity because think about it. He chooses to put up with us. <laughs> think about it. He chooses to put up with us and do the long way about everything. Um, when God is doing something, he does it not only spiritually, but physically as well. And he does so so that it can be communicated to us clearly. In other words, he cooperates with our very nature. He cooperates with human nature when he does this. And so when God becomes man, it's like the full manifestation, the full affirmation of the fact that God and man can coincide, they can coexist. Without the incarnation, it would be very easy to assume that divinity is just way up there in the sky. It's impossible for us to have access to and that we as humans, we're just animals on the ground, you know, crawling around in the dirt, you know, eating food, doing other things <laughs> that are very gritty and human. And we just like... um and that we're just like stuck down here and God is just way up there on the mountain. And I wish one day I could even hear the echo of a song that comes down from that mountain. But like with the incarnation, what the Lord reveals is, is that all of a sudden divinity is possible. You know what I mean? Like that chasm shrinks a lot. All of a sudden we're not just animals in the dirt, but now all of a sudden our nature is, is cooperative with divine nature and that all of a sudden, divinity and humanity actually can coexist. They aren't opposites in, in, in that way anymore, but they can be partners, right? And so, so when God becomes man, he really, he really affirms the original dignity that man had been given in his creation. Remember, we go back and we see the image and likeness. That image and likeness language is all the more brought to the forefront and is all the more affirmed in, in Jesus Christ's incarnation when he took on or human flesh. And so Jesus is really the fulfillment of that pattern that began all the way at the beginning of time and comes to us now. 
Um, the ancient church fathers um, always said that God became man so that man could become like God. So what we see in the incarnation is the common pattern that happened in the Old Testament, but it's brought to this fullness. We see the pattern of man is lost, man is sinful, man is in the darkness, man is dead, is dead. But God comes and finds us. He finds us and he brings us home. He finds us and he enlightens our darkness. He finds us and he heals us of our wounds and he resurrects us from dead. So God became man so that we may become like God. That's what the, that's what the ancient church fathers always say. And so the incarnation is this epic moment where God reaches down from heaven and like takes us up back into himself. One way to understand it is um, theologians have oftentimes talked about how the, the entire life of Jesus on earth is like one big moment, right? Remember, we're thinking about like salvation history out of time. Like God, you know, Jesus's life unfolds through time, but in a supernatural way in eternity, Jesus Christ's whole life is like one big swing. It's like one big motion, right? It's one activity. And so it begins with the incarnation, which happens at the Annunciation, right? That, that dialogue between the new messenger and the new Eve, right? The angel uh, Gabriel and Mary. That's the beginning of the incarnation because that's the moment of conception, um, which by the way, little tidbit. Um, unborn life is still human life. We, we, we affirm that just because of the, the enunciation and the, the cl- clarity there. But um, it begins with the incarnation and that motion ends, if it, if it ends, you know, there's a way in which you could say it, it continues even today. But in that, that singular motion of Christ's life on earth ends with the ascension, right? And so there's the incarnation, in the ascension. I also realize I'm talking with my hands right now, which is funny because y'all can't see me. So none of my hand gestures are helpful for you guys. But the point is with the incarnation, God reaches down from heaven to earth. And then in the ascension, uh, man reaches up from earth to God. And so you can imagine almost like this pincer movement, one point coming down from heaven and one point going up from earth. And you know, what's crazy. What's crazy about this image is that at the point of both the reaching down from heaven and the reaching up from earth are the same person, Jesus Christ. And so although the incarnation and the ascension happen like in separate moments in time, they're kind of two coinciding like moments that come together. You can imagine God is constantly reaching down to earth through Jesus, through the Son of God, and the Son of God now on earth become man, represents all of mankind, and is now elevating all of mankind back up to heaven. Beautiful little reflection, I think, on the incarnation and just exactly what's going on. God is bridging this gap between God and man, and he is doing so and accomplishing that feat in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, right? The God-man. Um. Yeah, and so he is the fulfillment of the incarnation. But that incarnation is not over with this mystery. We could, we could sit here and just talk about this particular element, how beautiful it is that God became incarnate. Um, and, and for like a little tidbit, that's why I think the, the gospel writer Luke is really big on that. Like he talks about how Jesus eats. You know what I mean? Like he's trying to show you this is not just a God who appeared to us. This isn't just a spirit who appeared to us, but this is an actual enfleshed man. I mean, there... I. I've, I've said this too. I mean, Jesus would have looked very ordinary to us. He would have looked just like a man. Like, I, I, I'm not entirely sure 
with the naked eye, any of us would be able to distinguish Jesus from just another first century Palestinian man. Like if you just lined up a whole row of them, I don't think we would know. Spiritually, mystically, with the eyes of faith, there'd be a huge difference. But I don't know. You know, it's one of those like a lot of people saw Jesus and didn't understand who he was. But anyway, Jesus's incarnation establishes a methodology of relationship between God and man. Right. And, and, and whatever was pre-existent, whatever like echoes of that methodology were already being established in the Old Testament, they were brought to completeness and fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. And so in Jesus Christ, um, Jesus tells us like, whoever looks at me sees the Father, right? All of a sudden, because we see Jesus, we see the Heavenly Father. We have access um, to the eternal face of God, which is an incredible thing. Reflect on that too, then maybe that's something more on the more spiritual side. Reflect on the fact that God, before Jesus Christ, God was like this invisible spiritual reality. The, the ancient Jews believed that if you saw God face to face, you would die. Like he would just die immediately. Like his glory is so powerful, like it would destroy you. And so that's oftentimes, by the way, um, that's one of the reasons why whenever Whenever God speaks to people in the Old Testament, it says that they shield their face, like they fall to the ground and cover their face because they're like terrified of dying. You know, they don't want to see God face to face. That is is God, right? That is his glory. And all of a sudden in the incarnation, God takes on a human face. Like God has an actual human face now in the person of Jesus Christ. It's incredible. I just, I, I, I never like... Sorry, I'm kind of nerdy now. I, do, I like never exhaust from just thinking about the crazy things. Um, here's another one for you, uh, especially for you, those of you who are parents. Um, Jesus probably would have spoken with the accent of Joseph and or Mary. Like Joseph, Joseph was the foster father of the Lord. Like the heavenly father entrusted Jesus, his only son, who is God, by the way to the care of a human father, Joseph, who was, who was a normal guy. He was imperfect. He was, he was a saint. I mean, he was, he's, a, he's, a, he's one of the greatest saints in heaven, but he's still a man. Like he wasn't a special man. He wasn't like a God man. Like he was just a man, you know? Um, and so he was tasked with raising Jesus. And so he would have taught Jesus carpentry, but more fundamentally than that, Joseph would have been responsible with Mary as well. Like Joseph and Mary would have been responsible for teaching Jesus how to speak. Like think about, for those of you who are parents, think about your child, your infant child, and think about that whole, those, those whole developmental processes, processes where like they, they start there and then they start rolling over and then they start pushing their weight up. They start picking their head up. They start to crawl. Then they stand and all that stuff, you know, like, um, have many family members who are much more versed in the developmental processes of children, having two pediatricians and a OBGYN in the family. But all that to say, you watch that slow growth and then they start to kind of babble and make sounds. And as they start to make sounds, they start to kind of learn to manipulate their mouth and their vocal cords to make different kinds of sounds. And eventually they become words. And then the words all of a sudden become intelligible because they, they, it's like they know, they understand words long before they can speak them. Well, this whole process presumably would have had to happen for Jesus as well. I mean, he was like us in all things but sin. And he, and he came in to, he, be, he became man. And so he would have had to learn all this. And so it's the voice of Joseph and the voice of Mary that teaches God in a way how to speak. 
That's crazy. That's crazy when you think about it because Jesus Christ is the word of God through whom Joseph and Mary were created. But then Joseph and Mary are tasked with teaching Jesus how to speak. That's a crazy mystery. So as parents, when you are teaching your children how to speak, you're cooperating with like the, the, the role that God has in us in teaching us how to be and how to praise and all those things. And so parenthood is an incredibly dignified um, vocation. And it's dignified in the fact that Jesus, that God, when he became man, decided to take on parents. You know what I mean? He, he, he came to us in the context of a family. So maybe that's like one of the first, or one of the, one of the reflections we can think about too. Whenever Jesus touches something, God has touched that thing now. And so whenever Jesus touches something, he, um, he transforms that thing. That thing is no longer what it used to be. It's, it's, it's different. Um, I, 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 ref- I focus on this on a couple different feast days throughout the year. And the first one is on the baptism of the Lord. Right, Jesus. Um, Jesus gets baptized in the water by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says exactly what a saint would say, which is, "Jesus, what do I have to offer you in baptism? Like, why in the world, <laughs> like, why in the world would I baptize you? Like, you need to baptize me. I have nothing to offer you." But Jesus does it. And the mystery is like, okay, so for us, baptism cleanses us of original sin. It inducts us into the body of Christ. Neither of those things need um, need to happen to Jesus. And the third thing that happens is we, we get adopted as sons or daughters of our Heavenly Father. None of those three things does Jesus need, right? None of those three things does Jesus get. So maybe, maybe in a certain way, Jesus was not the one that was baptized, but maybe instead the water was the one who was baptized and the water was baptized by Jesus. And the reason this is important is because Ever since Jesus was baptized in the water, all of a sudden water becomes the only um, substance by which baptism can occur. Think about how crazy that is. Like, think about how unique and honorary, like, think about the honor that water has, unique in creation, that water is the only thing, the only substance that can communicate the sacrament of baptism. You can't use any other liquid, by the way. It has to be water. You can't use spit. You can't use Coke. You can't use, you know, whatever, whatever. Like there's something about water now that has been baptized in a special way by our Lord's touching it and choosing it that transforms it. This is starting to kind of give you a little insight into why the incarnation is important. And so if that is the significance of Jesus touching water and choosing it for its substance, and I could say the same thing about wheat bread in grape wine, which the Lord chose to be the unique vessels that become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. He chose those materials in the last supper when he picked up wheat bread and grape wine and said, this is my body and this is my blood, right? So those substances have been transformed because the Lord has chosen them. Um, I've oftentimes made the joke that uh, I kind of wish Jesus would have chose like chosen like Oreos and whiskey or something, you know what I mean? Like something a little more delicious than wheat bread and grape wine, but that's what he chose. Jesus chose that. And there will never be another substance that can be substituted for that. And that's a conversation that's actually happened throughout the history of the church. Um, well, grape wine is like hard for us in certain cultures to get. So can we use like rice wine or can we use like different kinds of bread, like made with different kinds of wheat? And the, and the church has been adamant. Jesus chose wheat bread and grape wine. 
So that's what that's what's what the Eucharist becomes. That's what that's those are the substances that become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. So if that's true for the sacramental elements that Jesus chose, how much more true is that for the nature Jesus took God took into himself when he became incarnate? When God chose to become man, he elevated and honored um humanity in a very unique and special way. And that's like an incredible blessing that the Lord gives to us. And so we, and and I've kind of said it already, but like we kind of see now that like mankind is actually capable of cooperating in, in a perfect union with God. And remember from if you listen to my Mary episodes, that was a point I made there. One of the one of the greatest miracles of Mary, and one maybe one of the greatest brilliances, if you will, of God choosing Mary to participate in salvation in the way she, she did, was to show us as other men, right, as other men and women in, in Earth, that like, hey, look, this is a normal woman, and she cooperated perfectly with God, and now salvation reigns, which means that mankind is actually capable of doing this. In a, in a real way, in a real way. And that's kind of what, that's one of the crazy mysteries of the incarnation. But the incarnation doesn't end there, okay? Um, a lot of people are like, well, you know, Jesus ascended into heaven, and so he took his body with him, and his incarnation is kind of done there. That, how is that possibly true? Um, I kind of get it on one level, but think think bigger, right? Metanoia, think differently. Um, God, from the very beginning, has manifested himself, manifested himself in different ways, like physically and corporally. He's, he's used mediators constantly throughout um, the history, the, the history of, of salvation history. So then when Jesus is ready to leave, quote unquote, like it, when he is ready to leave his body, to ascend into heaven and to take his body with him into heaven, Jesus is not leaving us. He's not leaving us. And his incarnation isn't over. It's transformed in a new way. Does, Christ, does the body of Christ leave when Christ ascends into heaven? Only, only in one way. But what do we call the church? We call the church the body of Christ. And so the more, a more perfect way to think about it is Jesus did not ascend into heaven to leave us behind. Jesus ascended into heaven so that his body could be extended. His body could be expanded. His body could actually reach further, right? When he was just walking on earth as one human, as like one human body, he was limited in how much he could talk and how much he could touch and how, where, where he could go. But now, because of the church, because he has given his same grace, his same power, and this happens, right, when he comes into the upper room and he breathes on the apostles and gives them the power to forgive sins. This happens in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends upon the people. It happens all these different times when Jesus commissions his disciples and sends them out into the world to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. All of these incredible moments, what the Lord is doing is giving his people his own power, his own spirit, his own grace. And he says, I will live through you. He tells his disciples, listen, if you ever get put on trial, don't prepare a defense. I will speak through you, right? There's this whole, all of this language. And if you look closely throughout the gospel, you see very clearly this pattern that Jesus does a miracle. And then he looks at his disciples and says, and you can do it too. Think about um, the walking on the water incident. You know, 
I, I've often I've, I've reflected a lot on this passage, and I love that story of Jesus walking on the water. And you can imagine like the heart of Peter. Peter's sitting on the boat, and he was a fisherman, so boats were like his thing. He probably spent more time on boats than he spent on land. I mean, that was Peter. And so he's very comfortable in the boat, but then he sees God walking on the water, doing something completely crazy and something new. But Peter has also seen Jesus perform a lot of miracles. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's kind of one of those, like, if I was if I was one of the apostles or one of his disciples and I was walking around, would I start getting bored with like, oh, there's another healing, like another leper is cured, <laughs> like, good for you guys, like, Jesus is so cool, like, and not like bored with him, but like bored with like, you just get cu- accustomed to it. Right? Maybe you'd get bored with it, and maybe I'm just speaking as a materialist, secularist, I don't know, modern um, American or what, I don't know. But I don't know. Like, Peter would have seen Jesus perform a lot of miracles. So I would imagine a part of Peter is like, oh, of course. Like, yeah, Jesus can walk on water. Like, I've seen him calm the storm. I've seen him multiply loaves. I've seen him do all this stuff. But the, the, the real miracle, or maybe the real sticking point of that story was that then Jesus looks at Peter and says, how about you do it? Right? Like that, that's the, that's the turn in that story. It's like, okay, of course Jesus can walk on water. He's God. Right. But then Jesus looks at Peter and says, how about you join me? How about you walk on water too? come out on the water? And then he does. And Peter walks, right? And he walks and, and then he gets anxious about the storm and then he sinks a little bit, but Jesus saves him. So it's, it's a beautiful story. But the whole point I'm saying there is God, Jesus was not satisfied with just coming and healing us or coming and just doing these things for us. What he wants, what he wants is he wants us to join him in that mission. And so he gives us his own power and says, okay, now you go do it. And this is really important in Luke, I think chapter 10 when, when Jesus is talking to his teachers and he says, Where, what, wherever you teach, I will teach through you, right? Like when, it, when you speak, I am speaking through you. Like there's this idea that whatever, wherever the apostles go, Jesus goes. And this is very clear when you reflect on the fact that the name Christian, which was given in Antioch in the early, early church, the name Christian is literally, it's a diminutive word. So um, in, in Greek, it literally means little Christ, like you're like a miniature Christ. That's that's exactly what's going on there. So the church as the body of Christ is referred to by um, a lot of theologians as the Christus prolungatus, um, which is Latin for the prolonged Christ or the extended Christ, is the fact that the church is Christ extended through the whole world. Jesus ascended into heaven not to leave us, but so that in time, Jesus's real body could be extended into every corner of the world all at once. Wherever there is a Christian, Jesus is there in some mystical way. And so we're talking about the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus's incarnation is extended even to the church. The church is an incarnate being. The church, is, the church is not just a spiritual communion of persons, but the church is now also physical. It's an incarnate thing. And remember, we go all the way back to creation. Uh, mankind is an incarnate spirit. Mankind is body and soul. And so why would then God found a church that's just soul and no body? It doesn't make any sense. And so he didn't do that. What Christ did was he established just like he has always established. He established a visible community that is a symbol and a sign of the invisible union that we share, right? 
And so everything is visible and invisible. There's, there's a visible, physical, tangible thing, but there's also the invisible grace and reality behind it. And this, if you're smart and you know your Catholic theology, you would know that what I, the language I'm using is the same language used to define a sacrament. Okay? A sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible reality. And this is why, if, you, if you've never heard this before, this is an actually interesting point, but this is why the church is referred to as the proto-sacrament or like the, 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 the first sacrament, like the fundamental sacrament. The church is the fundamental sacrament out of which all the seven sacraments come to us from. Okay. So let's unpack that just a little bit. Um, this is, uh, by the way, before I leave too quickly from the church as sacrament or the church is visible and invisible, um, this is this fundamental teaching um, of the church is a huge departure point um, during the Protestant Reformation. Um, one of the they call like the grandfather. I think it's I think he's nicknamed the grandfather of the Reformation was a name by by a man by the name of John Wycliffe who came to us in the 15th century, and he like Martin Luther and like many and like many men at the time were looking around at the church and saying, okay, bishops are are having illegitimate children. The priests haven't even been educated. They don't even know our theology and they're teaching stuff from the pulpit. That's not even accurate. The popes are who knows where the popes are and what they're doing. You know, it's a crazy time in the church and he's looking around and said, these people don't even believe in God. Like so many of these sinful evil men, they don't even really have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Right. And so in a way, what John Wycliffe said is how is it even possible that these people are part of the church? Right? How can they be part of the body of Christ if they constantly offend him right, with their sin? And so what John Wycliffe proposed was that the church was actually not a physical entity at all. It wasn't visible. The, the, the visible church was merely a shell. Right, But the real thing, the real church was this invisible spiritual union of believers. Okay, so that was kind of the, the contribution of John Wycliffe to the theology of the day. And that became the, the seed bed of, of Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Protestants who came later. Because the only way you can justify Protestantism truly, like on a, because the, the Lord promised that his church would never fail. He promised that it would be protected for all times. And, and to imply that the church fell apart would imply that the Holy Spirit somehow failed. And so you have to reconcile. If you're going to reform, if you're going to break away from the church and found a new church, you have to somehow justify that what you did was actually a restoration of the real church. And the only way you could do that, practically speaking, is if you if you formulated a theory by which the real church was not actually the re- like the church we're looking at is not really the real church and that the real church quote unquote is somehow like hidden underneath it right and so what we need to do is just get rid of this shell that's become corrupt and cor- and depraved and we just need to slough off that shell and we need to kind of reestablish a new visible church that is much more in line with the spiritual church but then as time progresses, more Protestants even started to realize, well, then that 
that shell becomes corrupted because mankind's involved in it. And so then you kind of get to where we are today, which is let's not even put up a shell at all. Like the church is merely spiritual. It's all about your relationship personally with Jesus Christ, right? And so that's kind of where we land today with non-denominationalism um, as, as a thing, which by the way, I think is a misnomer because non-denominationalism in and of itself is its own denomination. But you get, you get the point I'm trying to make. Like, Every new shell is put on at the heart of, I think, I really do think at the heart of Protestant theology is an understanding that the church is merely invisible and that it's only those who have a relationship with Jesus and that whether you have a visible membership in a community or church really doesn't matter. It's all about your relationship with Jesus. That's kind of a, a short and and maybe and I, I believe it's fair, but maybe it's a little too simple. But that's kind of that's the heart of that's the heart of the Protestant Reformation, and I would propose that Jesus Christ clearly um, speaks against that. Um, when he established the church, he established it not only as a spiritual unity, but also as a visible unity. Um, we can, we, let's, let's table the rest of that for maybe a later discussion on ecclesiology itself. Ecclesiology is just a fancy term for the study of the church, and we can talk more about ecclesiology. But for now, we're talking about the incarnation. And the reason I brought this up is I want you to understand that our understanding of incarnation has radical implications in the way that we practice our faith and relate to God. That's that's kind of the image. And so God establishes a church that is both visible and invisible. And those things cannot be distinguished so easily. And in and, and so much so, like think about think about Jesus Christ himself. Um, the first five hundred years of the church was a constant battle to figure out the nature of the incarnation. Okay, well, is Jesus Christ fully God and like just kind of in a human shell, which by the way, it's like, it's kind of like a, it's almost like a Christological um, mirror of the, of the ecclesiology of Protestantism, right? Like, well, God is God, but then he comes to us kind of in this human shell. He's not really human. And then other people propose, no, Jesus Christ was a man who was then elevated to divinity when he was baptized, right? And so the, all of these different heresies started to crop up throughout the ancient church. And what the church finally and definitively landed on is, no, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is, he, he is the word of God who is from the beginning, right? All, this, all that kind of stuff. And so the teaching that we take for granted, it took 500 years for the church to really hammer out. And it was not a pretty conversation. There was a time when more of the bishops were heretics than they were Orthodox. It was a messy time. There's a messy time in the church. But what's interesting for all the messiness of church history, for all the messiness and the debates and the arguments and stuff, the church has never wavered. The church has never sided with heresy. The church has always persevered um, in its teachings on morals and faith, you know? And so that to me is a sign that although the body is weak, although the human nature is is lacking, you know what? There is this other divine nature that perseveres with it and is patient with it. And at times, God punishes the church. At times, God lets the church fall into disarray because people aren't faithful, in the same way that he did in the Old Testament. He allows the, the chosen people to, to get attacked. He allows them to get brought into exile. <clears throat> and so the Lord does allow people who manage the church to do silly things. But what's interesting and what really what's truly miraculous is even in the midst of the most corrupt moments, 
even in the midst of the most human moments in the whole history of the church, our fundamental teachings on the faith and our fundamental teachings on what is good and what is evil have never changed. Not once. Think about kind of how miraculous that is. We're talking 2,000 years of the church. The teachings have never changed. That's something. That's like, that's miraculous beyond, you know, it's, it's a deeper thing. But it's the miracle of the incarnation. This visible thing has an invisible principle to it as well. And God's body is being made visible through the church. Um, and, the ex- and, so, and so let's go back a little bit and backtrack to the sacraments. So when God decided, okay, I, made, I, I sacrificed myself on the cross. I want the grace that I unlocked you know, in my sacrifice. I want that grace to be available to my people. The question is how? right? It's not so clear. So we, we, know, we know in scripture that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, right? But like how? That's not like, that's not really an answer. What does faith mean? And this is really the heart of a lot more debates, you know, between Catholic theologians and Protestants. It's like, well, what does it mean to have faith? And, and there's a lot of time there. And that would be a whole nother conversation for another episode is, is um, what we call uh, uh, soteriology, how we are saved, like the study of salvation. But anyway, the question is, how are we saved? And, and so, okay, think about every remedy God has given man from the beginning of time. I guarantee you, based on all of the data before, whatever God gives us as a remedy is going to be a deeply spiritually impactful remedy, but it will also be made manifest in a physical way. It'll be an incarnate remedy, okay? Because an incarnate remedy is an appropriate remedy for an incarnate spirit, right? So that's the thing. When God establishes his remedy for man, when he establishes the means by which forgiveness of sins and, 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 and communion with him and, and salvation and, and healing and all of these incredible graces the Lord pours out for us, he established a sacrament, a sacred mystery that is both visible and invisible because that's what God does. Every time he interacts with us, he does it Invisibly and visibly. That's that's like the nature. And that's why I think incarnation is so central to understanding the world. Okay. And so the sacraments are all visible and they are invisible. Um, and we can do a whole nother episode on the sacraments as well. But that's why he did it the way he did it. And that's why I would stand and die for the truth that the sacraments are absolutely the means by which God chooses to give his grace to his people. And that's why the sacraments, you've got to have the sacraments. If you want to have your sins forgiven, go to the physical sacrament of confession and confess your sins so that not only your sins can be spiritually forgiven, but you can also hear those, those physical, those, those, those audible words that I absolve you of your sins and your sins are forgiven, right? That's what John Parker talked about was the most meaningful moment in his, in his kind of conversion to Catholicism with the sacrament of confession is when he heard the words, your sins are forgiven. You know, it's one thing to believe in your heart that it's another thing to have another physical human person who represents God and the church look at you and say, your sins are forgiven. And the reason it's so impactful is because we are incarnate spirits. And so we long for incarnate realities. We long for the spiritual, but we also long for the corporeal. We long for this union between God and man because that's the nature by which we were created. And so that's why Jesus is like the perfect fulfillment of everything you hunger for. He is God. He's infinite, right? He's eternal, 
but he's also man. He's one of us. Like he, he's visible. We know him. We can see him. We can hear his voice. You know, he's present to us. And so that's why the incarnation is so important in the sacraments as well. But maybe, maybe something to conclude with and some reflections to think about. Why, um, how is this important for me? Well, the, the first reason it's important is just to understand that the church and the sacraments are incarnate. They're visible for a particular reason and that God intended that. But really another reason why it's important is that if we are invited into the life of Christ, then we are also being invited into his incarnation, right? In order to be invited into his death and then ultimately into his resurrection, which gives us eternal life, we also have to be invited into his incarnation. And so what that means is our souls are incarnate in our bodies, but it also means that Jesus Christ wants to become incarnate through us, right? Remember, go back to the church. We are the body of Christ. And Paul tells us that we are the members of the body of Christ. So each and every one of us is in a real way, a Christian, a little Christ who manifests the Lord out in the world. And so in our lives, particularly speaking, we are called to be a part of that incarnation. But on a more like personal kind of transformative level, because Jesus Christ became man, because Jesus Christ decided to be born, because he decided to learn how to walk, because he decided to learn carpentry, because he ate food and he got hungry and he fasted and he prayed and he, you know, because he went through the all that is human, we now know that our mundane, boring human lives that seem so ordinary, even those lives are places where God can encounter us. Think about that for a moment. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to encounter God, you had to go to a sacred place. But now, because God has walked on earth and he has conquered weather through the storm, storm, he has conquered um, death, he's conquered sin, he's conquered suffering, he's conquered every little dimension, every little weapon the enemy has thrown at him, every little dominion that, that that was lost from Adam to Satan in the fall, every little piece of that creation now belongs to Christ again. And so everywhere you go, Everything you do, even the most little mundane things that seem boring, taking out the trash, waiting in traffic, cooking dinner for your family, like going to work, you know, filing taxes, all of those little moments are now moments where that can be transformed into incarnational moments. Those are moments where the Lord can become present. We're not just like banging out through life. It's, it's, it's not like that. What all of a sudden you get to do because of the incarnation and because you are also incarnational is that you can encounter God in every single one of those moments. One of the biggest mistakes, and I think one of the biggest lies the enemy is fighting desperately to, 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 to sell us on is the fact that like you can only pray or you can only encounter God when you're at church. That's not true. That's not true. Because the Lord has become incarnate, all of a sudden you can see him and be with him wherever you go, right? Now, because of the incarnation as well, there is a difference in space, like going to a sacred space, going to a holy site, going to a church, going and sitting before the blessed sacrament. Those are impactful things as well. 
and those are in, in a sense more impactful. They they open you up all the more because you're not only putting your heart in the Lord's presence, but you're also now like putting your body, which is part of that whole thing, right? And so the incarnation just breaks open new possibilities, even spiritually in our prayer lives. But here's maybe even a more profound thing to reflect on and pray about. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, so when he climbed up on the cross and like sacrificed himself for that moment of salvation, what he carried with him was all sin, all suffering, all pain, all human experience. He took into himself everything, everything. He took into himself all of us. When he was on the cross, he had you in mind. He had your suffering. He had your pain. He had your sinfulness. He had your joy. He had your everything that you are. He, he, he had with him in a mysterious way. Like he brought every man, every, every, every bit of creation with himself and he sacrificed himself and he died. Um, he offered all of that. And he endured all of that. And part of the reason he became incarnate was to, was to connect with us in a more way. But he endured all of that pain so that no matter where you ever experience pain again, no matter how bad your suffering gets, no matter how lonely you may feel or isolated, no matter where you go, you can be confident that Jesus is already there. You can be confident that the Lord has already experienced that. And so when we reflect like on the stations of the cross, for example, when we reflect on the life of Jesus, we can in a real way say, I know what that's like. And I know now that the Lord has been there with me. So when I feel lonely, guess what? The Lord knows loneliness. And so he's with you in that loneliness. When I feel dejected, well, the Lord was dejected. And so now he's with you in your own dejection. When the Lord was betrayed, right? We're like, well, I get betrayed. And so now we know that the Lord can be with you in your betrayal. He, he encounters all of humanity so that you may never be alone ever again, no matter how bad or good or whatever your life may become. Okay. And so, and maybe that's like the central grace. Maybe that's the central miracle, the central fruit of truly what the incarnation does for us. It, it opens up new avenues for encountering the Lord. Remember, <clears throat> the Lord loves you so much that he became like you. He took on your life into himself. He took on your drudgery, your sadness, your pain, your suffering, your memories. He took all of that stuff onto himself. And then he sacrificed it back to the Father. And so all we are called to do as disciples of Christ is to offer that in union with him, is to let him have our suffering, let him have our pain, let him have our death, let him have our fears and our worries and our anxieties. Let him have all of that because because it now can become an avenue by which we can encounter him. Hmm. There's so much more that can be said, but I think this will suffice for now. Other things will come up as time moves on, but um, I just want to, I want to encourage you guys to pray and reflect more about the mystery of the incarnation. The fact that God became man. He crossed the impossible chasm between God and man to become one of us so that he could bridge that chasm so that we could have access to God. And so don't forget that. The Lord became man to meet you so that you could see him, you could fall in love with him, you could know him, but he did so so that you could then take the next steps into divinity, 
you could take the next steps into eternal life. And so the whole point of the incarnation is this bridging between God and man. And now because of that, we have access to eternal life. And the Lord has a face that we can see. He has a voice that we can hear. And he has a heart that we can love. And God bless you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Epiphany Podcast. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand.